Uh, say the word gospel. Say it out loud. Say gospel. gospel. Now say it like you're excited about it. Gospel. Now say it like the Lions just won. Gospel. Yeah, there was one or two of you that got that. But uh, I was going to say Michigan. Well, it would have been okay. Greg's not here today. I could have said Michigan beat, beat Michigan State. But anyway, um, speaking of which, uh, I hope that you have been praying for all the families involved with what happened at Michigan State. And not only the families involved, but the students that weren't even involved that had to deal with that. Um, as we watched the news coverage, as a person who used to have a son that attended there, I cannot even imagine what was going through the hearts and minds of families that had students there. And I hope you will continue to lift up that college community in prayer, even if you root for the other school in Michigan, um, one way or the other. I root for both. Uh, I've always loved Michigan, but my money went to Michigan State, so I have to root for both of them from time to time. Um, but they certainly have been through it and need our help. We've been talking about good news, and in a world, especially a world like this week was for us, we need some good news, amen? Um, I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the best news that has ever been given, and we have been looking at the, the four gospels, the four books of the Bible at the beginning of the New Testament, select stories from them that tell the good news of the story of Jesus. For the last three weeks, we've actually been finding good news in the teachings of Jesus, in um, the first part of Matthew, in the Beatitudes, and the beginning of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 verses, or chapter 5 through about chapter 8 is the, the Sermon on the Mount. And so we've been looking at some of the teachings of Jesus where Jesus has shared with us that it is not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law that we should be concerned with and that we need to continue to strive um, to follow him in spirit and in truth. Today I want to look at an experience in Jesus' life. Now, this isn't as easy to preach on because, you know, when Jesus is teaching things, it's easy to say, see what Jesus said, do that, right? It's easy to kind of point to that and to bring those things out. Experiences that Jesus had sometimes mean different things to us than they would have meant to people back then. And so today we're going to look at one of the experiences in Jesus' life that impacted not only Jesus, but the three disciples that he took with him up into the mountain. Matthew chapter 17 Verses 1 through 9 is where we're going to be. Listen as I read it for you. Six days later, Jesus took Peter and the two brothers, James and John, and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But even as he spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Listen to him. The disciples were terrified and fell face down on the ground. Then Jesus came over and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus. As they went back down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Easy instructions, right? Don't tell anybody that your best friend in the world, the guy you've been following for the last few months, just literally turned into a glorified human candle right in front of your faces, right? How many of you could keep that a secret, you think? 
It would be tough, wouldn't it? It'd be difficult. We have no indication as to whether the disciples did share the news with others, but obviously Jesus meant for this experience right at that moment in time to be for them and them alone. This is a difficult story to find application in. It's sometimes tough to look at the things that are recorded about Jesus and to understand better how they fit into the overall story of what the gospel is. And I think because we're reading Matthew's version of this story, it is included in two of the other gospels as well, but we should look at this from the standpoint of Matthew. Now, from Matthew, we know that he was a person who wrote his story specifically directed at the Jews. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that he wrote anything different than the other gospel writers. It does mean that he may have written things in a different way, that he tended to make connections to the Old Testament and to traditions that the Jews had and some of those things that may not have been paid any attention to by John or Luke or Mark or the other writers. And so from that perspective, we can look at a few things that have to do with the story that would have caused the Jews of Jesus' day, either the Jews who were Christians or the Jews who were considering becoming Christians, would have connected with immediately. And one of those things, certainly, is the fact that this all took place high on a mountain. Does anybody remember any other important stories from the Bible that happened up on a mountain? There's one in particular in the Old Testament. Um, Moses went up onto Mount Sinai and brought down from Mount Sinai the law of God. If you are familiar with the old um, movie with Charlton Heston in it, you know, he brought the, the tablets down, got angry, and smashed them. If you're more into the Saturday Night Live kind of skit, he dropped them and they broke and he went and got more, right? There's been different depictions of how that all went. Uh, The scriptures simply say that he was angry at the sin of the people. So anyway, Moses goes up into this mountain and has this experience of the presence of God where he not only receives the law of God, but where he met with God. Sometimes we forget that. That on the top of Mount Sinai, the smoke descended and God was there and spoke to Moses firsthand. And Moses felt so comfortable with God that he said, God, I would love to see your face. And God said to Moses, if you see my face, you're in serious trouble. No one can see my face and survive. However, God was willing to put him in the cleft of a rock and to cover him with his hand. And as God passed by Moses, Moses was allowed to look after he had passed um, upon God. And it's this incredible story of the glorious, majestic splendor of all that God is. And Moses, who came this close to seeing him, What an incredible story. And so as Jesus is is going up on the high mountain and he has this experience, you can imagine that the Jews hearing the story were thinking, wow, maybe our God, maybe Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is doing something new because once again he's taken his prophet to the mountain to do something. And as they got up on that mountain, Jesus is transfigured and he's changed in some amazing ways. His face starts to shine, the the Bible says, like the sun. That's, That's pretty bright. Right, amen? That's pretty bright. You would need sunglasses to look at Jesus' face is what I'm saying. It was an amazing experience of the glory of God shining through Jesus and his clothes became the brightest white you can imagine. I can't imagine there's any laundry detergent in the world that could get him that white, amen? It just wouldn't happen. I don't know why people are so concerned about getting their laundry white anyway. There's only a certain degree of white you can see. Besides, you know, it's just kind of silly. Anyway, I'm not going to go there. But he, he starts to be transfigured and he's seen as different. The, the word in the Greek is metamorphosis. It's the same word that we get metamorphosis from. And it has to do with this change that occurs from the inside out. So the idea here is not that Jesus was suddenly reflecting maybe the glory of the Father. 
The idea is that God somehow just pulled back the curtain of his flesh just a little bit so that we could see the glory of the the living son of God shining through his person. And for a moment we see the glory of the glorified Christ here on earth. What an amazing story this is and what an amazing experience it must have been as Jesus is transformed before their very eyes and and interestingly enough throughout scripture whenever an angelic messenger or any kind of supernatural messenger from God shows up the same kind of description is given to them barring the fact that his face shone like the sun and so this would be a pretty common thing for, for us to, to read throughout scripture, except for this time, it's Jesus himself. As we continue, there are more things here that kind of connect the Jews back to the Old Testament. Um, Moses and Elijah suddenly miraculously show up. Now this always puzzled me as a kid, because I was taught growing up that you know as soon as you die, you get to go to heaven. And I always thought to myself, why in the world would Moses and Elijah ever wanna leave heaven to come back just to hang out with Jesus for like five minutes? That made no sense to me as a child. Anybody else wonder about stupid stuff like that? Or is it just me? It's just me. All right, there's a couple. All right. But you know, it's, it's a curious thing. And, and so Jesus meets on the mountain with Moses and Elijah. And the disciples are watching this whole thing happen. Now, why those two? Why those two? Well, as, as I began to read and study this, it, it seems rather natural to conclude that basically another connection is being made to the Old Testament. If you think about it, Matthew actually over and over again uses the term the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. The law being the law that Moses brought down from the mountain. The prophets being all of the teachings of Elijah and Elisha and all the prophets who came after them, which the Jews, you know, that was the whole body of information that the Jews relied upon for their information about God and how they were supposed to live this life. In fact, Jesus himself said that loving God and loving your, en- or loving your neighbor was the fulfillment of all of the what? Law and the prophets. And so the sum total of everything that a good Jew would have been taught growing up was summarized in those events. So here you have Jesus who has come to earth and will later say that he's establishing a new covenant with us through his blood, meeting together with the person who brought the law down from the mountain and the first and chief of the prophets, Elijah, who expanded on the law and taught people what else God expected of them. And so you have essentially the three big players in this whole game that God has been constructing throughout the beginning of time coming together. Moses the lawgiver, Elijah the first and greatest of the prophets coming together with Jesus who came to establish a new covenant. What an incredible meeting that would have been like. I would have loved to have gotten a couple autographs at that one, wouldn't you? Man, an incredible thing. I can see you're duly impressed. You're staring at me like, what do you, get on with it, move on. Application, you promised us application. I'm getting there, okay, give me, just be patient. But what an incredible meeting that would have been. Moses and Elijah appear and they start talking to Jesus and and in all of this, Peter is watching all, he's watching Jesus be transfigured and he's watching Elijah and Moses and, and Peter's mind is blown and Peter does what Peter always does. What does Peter always do? Say something. <laughs> Anybody else know somebody like that who cannot keep their mouth shut even when they should keep their mouth shut? I might be one of those people, just so you know. I have the gift of gab. How many of you self-proclaim that you have the gift of gab? Amen? There's, there's at least a couple of us. Funny, most of the teachers, you know. I, it's fun to think about this, but I've often said, I heard somebody else say this once, and I'm like, yeah, that's me. I, I could literally talk on any topic 
in any situation for any length of time with or without information or warning. That's me. I mean, I can make stuff up like crazy. I used to do this to my kids all the time. They'd ask me a question that I knew nothing about, and I would just start, you know, spinning a yarn, you know, and just, it's not lying because you're doing it to your kids, but I would start telling them things that absolutely weren't true and I had no idea about, but man, I could sell it to them, and that years later, sometimes they would come to me and go, you were lying about that, huh? And I'm like, yes, you didn't know that? Anyway, but it's, it's fun to do that with your kids. But anyway, it, it's the gift of gab in me. I'm sorry. Peter was that way. And not only could Peter not keep his mouth shut, but he also couldn't keep still. And so Peter says to Jesus, Jesus, this is awesome. I'm so glad I'm here. I'm so glad you chose me to come. How about this? How about if I build something? because I don't know what else to do, right? There's, there's Moses, there's Elijah. I have nothing to contribute to this conversation right now. I mean, at least he identified that. So he's like, Jesus, how about if I do something? How about if we build some shelters? You guys can chill under the shelters. Maybe that'll keep these guys around longer, and, and we can just enjoy this moment. Because you see, Peter was of the opinion and, and mistaken in the sense of this is for him. But this really wasn't for him. In fact, he was just one of the people that got to observe it. And Peter needed to learn, like many of us sometimes need to learn, that one of the best things that we can do is to do nothing, to just be there, to be. Think about that for a minute. How many times in your life have you been unsettled in your spirit and you didn't know what to do, and so you ran off and did something and it was the wrong thing? When instead of going off and doing something, you could have just taken a moment to to be the discipleship program that I've been studying and trying to figure out if we can implement here puts a lot of emphasis on this. Being proceeds, precedes doing. Before you can ever act like a child of God, you have to be a child of God. Before you can ever implement some truth that you've learned in Scripture, you have to sit in it for a minute. You have to be still and find out where you go. How many of you have heard the term, don't just stand there, do something? You ever said that? My grandma used to say, and I'm sure she heard it from somebody else, don't just do something, stand there. See how she flipped it around? I thought that was amusing. All of you are like, whatever. Right? Don't just do something, stand there. Listen, sometimes the best thing that you can do is not do and just be. Peter had the opportunity to soak in the transfiguration of Jesus, the presence of Elijah, and the presence of Moses. But instead of just sitting there and soaking that in so that he could take what he could get from it, he decided he wanted to do something. And so he talks. And interestingly enough, almost immediately after Peter says that, God speaks, right? God talks from the cloud. Interestingly enough, it's a bright cloud. Most of the time when a a cloud descends, things get dark, doesn't it? This is a bright cloud. Weird. God can make anything he wants. Amen? And so God descends in this bright cloud, and right on the cuff of Peter's words, he says, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, we we don't know who God was targeting that. We don't know if he was saying it for the disciples' benefit or if he was saying it for Jesus' benefit. The disciples would need to be encouraged because they were about to go through the hardest thing they would ever go through. They were going to watch their Savior, the person they were following, be crucified, arrested, and and beaten and crucified. 
they would need the encouragement God was giving them, the reassurance. But Jesus also probably needed it. I mean, just a few um, days later, a few weeks later, I'm not sure what the exact timeline was, but very soon after this, Jesus would be in the Garden of Gethsemane on his face before God saying, if there's any other way, please do it any other way. The Bible says that he cried or he sweat um, drops of blood. He was so agitated. He was so intense. Jesus would need the encouragement too. And, and I believe the voice of God came at this time. Even though he said exactly the same thing that he said at Jesus' baptism, he was essentially giving encouragement. And, and probably to both of them, it was probably for both of those reasons. So the, in, the disciples would be encouraged and so that Jesus would be encouraged. And of course, the disciples, when they hear the voice of God, have the only proper and, and, and real you know, response to that. They fell on their faces terrified. I mean to tell you, if a, a bright cloud ever descends in my presence and talks to me, I'm on my face, amen? amen? To do anything else is just suicide. In the presence of God, there's really only one position human beings should be in, and that is prostrate before him. And so Peter and James and John got to experience this. Now, I kind of saved this for the end because I want this to be kind of where we put our emphasis in our dwelling. One of the most remarkable things about this story isn't necessarily where it happened or even what happened, but who Jesus chose to go with him. Jesus could have taken the 12 with him, all 12 of the disciples, because, I mean, the more the merrier, right? When God's presence descends, isn't it better to have more people there to see it, you would think? I mean, why not do this in front of all the multitudes of crowds that were probably waiting down at the bottom of the mountain? I mean, everywhere Jesus went by this time, there were thousands of people that followed him everywhere. Why not let this experience be for the, the multitudes of people that were there? That would probably guarantee that even in that day when, when they tried to turn them against Jesus, that they would never leave him. I mean, you hear a voice from heaven. Man, that's a big, that's a big sign. But Jesus didn't do this in the presence of everyone. He did it in the presence of a few. Three that he chose, we think by hand. It's not like he just started walking and waited to see who would follow him. It, it, it implies that he picked them, handpicked them. Why? Friends, I believe that experiences like this one, where the presence of God becomes real in a place, in a, in a specific moment of time, to a specific group of people that that God targets that experience for a reason. I think that the reason that Jesus did this, the revelation of Jesus' true nature, was not for everyone. But he specifically designed this for those who would be with him so that they could be encouraged because God's revelation is often targeted and aimed at specific people in specific places to deal with specific problems or callings or missions, and the fact that they got to be a part of it was an incredible blessing to be sure, but it was for them. It wasn't for everyone. It was for them and them only. Jesus even told them as they went down the mountain not to tell anyone what they had seen, but imagine if they had, if they got to the bottom of the mountain and they said to the rest of the disciples, you'll never guess what we got to see, right? Can you imagine what the impact on the other disciples would have been? Would they have reacted with, oh, that's great for you, or would they have been envious? Why didn't Jesus take us? Is it any wonder that Jesus said, listen, you need to wait until I have been crucified before, before you tell anyone? Because this experience wasn't for everyone. It was for them alone. Sometimes God's revelation and his presence 
is for us, and, and it's better kept a secret until the right time when it can bring glory and honor to the one who really deserves it, God himself. Now, I recognize that most of you aren't expecting for, for Jesus or anyone that you know to be transfigured right in front of you. If any of you, while I'm in your presence, starts glowing, I'm going to think that's extremely weird, just so you know. I'm not expecting to see that happen. As holy as some of our saints are, I don't think God's going to transfigure Norma Krantz anytime soon. But listen to me, the presence of God is certainly, is certainly capable of falling anywhere that people are ready for it. Some of you have experienced that. In my lifetime, I've experienced it several times where I felt the presence of God so close and so real that I felt like I could reach out and touch him. But to be honest, I was afraid to at that point. And most of those times have happened while I've been singing. Music is the catalyst for me. It, it connects me to God, you know. Standing on a stage in front of the Michigan State Youth Convention, singing um, Empower Me. I remember the name of the song. We were singing Empower Me. And I swear to God, most of us on that platform felt like we could have reached up and taken God's hand right there. It was an incredible experience where the, the presence of God fell. And I don't think anybody in the audience had any idea what was happening on the platform. It was just unbelievable. And you know what? To try to tell somebody about it later was almost worthless because they just couldn't comprehend it. They couldn't understand it. Why? Because it was for me and me alone. Today, I almost ditched the message because I knew that there's a lot of questions about this whole Asbury situation that's going on. How many of you have heard about the revival that's taking place down at Asbury College? I, I almost today said, man, is this one of those times when I need to just set the sermon aside and, and sit down and have a conversation with people to answer questions and talk about what's happening there because I see a lot of confusion coming out of this. You know, the secular news media, they don't know how to report on stuff like this. They use a lot of words like so-called and what if and what is this and how does this happen and what's really going on? And you know what? Asbury University has done probably the best thing that you could ever do. They have deliberately told several news outlets that were friendly to them, not, not, not you know, secular ones that were coming in to, to just cause scandal, but they've actually called some of the people who would have come in and done a really nice story about what's happening, and they've literally called them and said, we don't want you to come. Because what's happening is, is between these people and God, and having news media there will only interfere with the process. I respect Asbury University for that. But some of you probably have questions. What's happening down there? Is this a real manifest presence of God coming down? Is there something special there? You know, is this something we need to get in on or we need to duplicate? Or, or what do we want to do? I see churches all over the place trying to start their own Asbury all of a sudden. And I just got to tell you that I feel about what's happening at Asbury like I feel the disciples felt about this. This is a, a revelation of God's glorious majesty and wonder to a specific group of people at a specific time in history for a specific purpose that we probably have no idea about. And so should you jump on a bus and go down there? It's a free country. But let me tell you this. I don't believe you have to go touch somebody at Asbury to experience revival because the God that we serve does not live in Kentucky. That didn't sound right. <laughs> Thank you, Walt. The God that we serve is not limited to a college campus in Kentucky. That sounds way better. He is omnipresent. You know what that means? He's everywhere. 
From what I hear about this revival that started on February 8th, I'm told, it started, depending on who you talk to, in one of two different ways. One news reporter that seemed to have an insight that maybe others didn't said that during the service, there was a student that stood up and began to share from their heart confession of things that they knew they needed to change in their lives and they, they, they just stood up and in the presence of everybody there began to confess their sins before God and ask God to forgive them and ask the people around him to forgive them and, and to, to basically you know clear the slate so that he could once again walk in a way that was pleasing to God. And from there, the whole tone of the service began to change and things began to happen that nobody could explain and, and they began to just fall on their knees before God and others were confessing and people were making up and, 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 you know, canceling out, you know, their, their grievances with each other and just amazing things began to happen. And since the 8th, there's been this ongoing prayer meeting that's happening. I read this morning that the college is, is going to nip it in the bud. They're going to not necessarily stop it, but they want to put some order to it because, man, it's tough. There's a lot of kids that have been there for eight days and they need to take care of themselves and other things. But anyway, all of that beside the point. I believe that if anywhere in the United States there are people that are willing to do what that student did and get serious about confessing their sins before God and to lay themselves before him and say, God, whatever you want with me, I believe that that is the seed that will plant revival anywhere you happen to be. You don't have to go there and touch it. Now, there are those that are asking the question, is this real? Is it really a revival? Is it a work of the Holy Spirit? Or is it just a bunch of students that got excited? One of the coolest things I read from one of the articles that I read about this was that in the back of the auditorium when they have their chapel services, there's always a bunch of older adults back there. There's some adults there, you know, for, you know, supervision purposes. But some of them are there simply because they choose every single chapel service to come and pray for the students. And those people sitting in the back of the room are giving credence to what is happening because they've been praying for it for years. Listen, the experience at Asbury is incredible. But we don't have to go to Asbury and bring it back. God can create it here now. He can create it in your prayer closet. He can create it in your car while you're driving down the road if you're willing to be open to it. He can create it wherever he chooses to create it because revival will come when people's hearts are ready for it. And I've been praying for that, have you? I hope that you have, because let me tell you something. In the shape our country's in, there is not a politician in the world that's going to fix it. Amen. There is no economic policy that's going to make everything good again in this country. We've got a high schooler from Battle Creek Central that was shot in the early morning hours and killed this week. What's going to fix that? You know what's going to fix that? Jesus is going to fix that. Revival is going to fix that. People living the life that God's called them to live and turning their hearts over to Him will fix that. Nothing else will. So if you're not praying for revival, what's taking you so long? Friends, it'll never come unless God's people are open for it and ready for it. And I'm not talking about a, you know, a two-week session of you know, praise and worship dance party, which I know is what some people think is revival. I'm talking about the kind of experience where when the people are walking away from it, their lives have been changed because of it. 
You see, it doesn't really matter what happens when the revival's going on. Some people are like, oh, it's, it's prayer. No, it's worship. No, it's Bible study. No, it has to be this. No, it has to be that. You know what it has to be? It has to be an experience with the living God that changes every single person that's there so that when they walk away from it, they're living a different life than when they went in. Living a life filled with the fruits of the Spirit, not just the gifts of the Spirit. And that's love, and that's joy, and that's peace, and that's patience, long-suffering, all of those, those fruits that are there. So as we look at Asbury, if you want to ask the question, is this real, let's watch and see the fruit that it bears. Are the people who walk away from that being changed into the likeness and the image of God? If so, the Spirit is present and God is working. But let's be honest, it's not our job to evaluate. It's our job to anticipate. And I hope that every single one of you will start, even in this moment, to anticipate the the great things that God could do in this church, in this community, at one of our colleges, at one of our high schools. Who says it has to be a college? Wouldn't it be awesome if God's presence fell in this community? Let's pray for it. Let's anticipate it. And more more importantly, let's get our hearts ready so that if it happens, we're ready for it. Listen, the transformation, transfiguration experience was an opportunity for three men to see God do something miraculous and incredible and experience the presence of God in such a way that that first they were so excited they couldn't stand it and then they were terrified. (laughs) And you know what? I believe if God chooses to send his spirit here in that way and shows up, we will feel the same thing. We will be so excited and then we'll probably be terrified. Because when God comes, he will ask things of you that you never thought possible. But then he will empower you to do things that you never thought possible. Pray with me and we'll close. God, I thank you for... Lord, I thank you for more than your word this morning. Lord, your word is living and powerful and active and Lord, we're seeing evidence of that in Asbury, Kentucky today where students who have read your word and studied your word and and who have prayed and who have prepared themselves are experiencing a great revival. Lord, I believe it's true. I want to see the fruit, obviously, and I believe we will. But Lord, I I thank you that your word is not just some book that we can study and, and figure out what the Greek and the Hebrews say but that is the living word of the living God, that you are still alive in this world and that you're seeking places where you might pour out your spirit to do incredible works that have yet to be done. God, we're not a a miracle-driven church by any stretch of the imagination, but the church of God used to be. At camp meetings and gatherings in, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, People regularly reported outpourings of your spirit that caused people to to be healed, for the lame to walk, the blind to see. All of those things used to happen in our movement. And God, if it be your desire to see those things happen again, I, I for one am open to it. And I would ask God that every person hearing the sound of my voice would redouble their efforts to not only pray for revival to come, whatever that looks like and whatever that means, but that we would begin to prepare our own hearts and and spend time confessing our own sins so that when you decide where to pour your spirit out, God, it might be here, it might be in this place, it might be with us. 
Lord, I don't know why you chose the three that you chose to take up into the mountain. But if you're going to have a mountaintop experience here in this area, I would love to be one of the three. And I know every person here probably would echo that sentiment. Prepare us, God, for all that you want to do in this community, in this church, in, in this state, and in this world, that we might be on the front lines of wherever you're working every minute of every day. God, use us, work through us, pour out your spirit here. And God, I would ask that if there are those here this morning that maybe have been questioning um, as they hear about revival happening, whether or not they need to go there because they need something from you. Maybe there are those here that haven't felt your presence or your spirit in some time and, and they feel like maybe it's just a distant thing and they, they want to recapture it, but maybe they don't know how. I pray that right now you would just visit them in a powerful way, that you would speak your words into their heart, that you would allow them to see your plan for them, that you would give them the purifying fire of your spirit to root out any habits that are not pleasing to you and that you would recreate us in the image of your son Jesus each and every day so that we are ready vessels for whatever you want to accomplish through us. God, we pray for revival. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. That being said, I am extremely pleased to be able to celebrate the fact that even two years ago, Pat and others in our church had the vision to start a prayer service on Wednesdays. Every Wednesday, we gather. I try to sing by myself, which is never a pretty experience. Pat shares the word, and then we pray. There's usually two or three that gather with us. There's a group of ladies that gathers before that service to pray, and there are those who come in just for that service. And I just want to let you know that if you're looking for an opportunity to pray and to worship, Come on Wednesdays at noon. We'd be happy to have you here. But I'm awfully glad that Pat and others started that process long before now because you know what? If God does choose to work here, I feel like the groundwork has already been laid. Isn't that exciting? Some of you, I can tell, not so much, but some of you are just fearful. Listen, fearful's a good condition to be in because it shows that you're at least accepting the possibility that God is at work. So go from this place and, and do good things. Have a good week. We'll see you next week.